Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. In the fall of 2010, a Cleveland High School basketball phenom named Octavius Williams had just begun his junior year. When his younger sister turned 10, their father and his father's girlfriend threw a big party at their apartment to celebrate on Halloween, bringing their blended family together. As day turned into night, the children's party turned into an adult party, and as things wound down, a fight began outside between members of either family. Two people drew guns, and one man, Dennis Cole, ended up in the hospital, paralyzed from the waist down. Police were told that the shooter was a young black man who had already fled the scene. When they went upstairs to speak with the partygoers in the apartment, they found and arrested a young black man, 17-year-old Octavius Williams. The victim eventually stabilized and identified Octavius from a photo array. Despite conflicting accounts of what happened during the shooting, it appears the state had clearly got their man. But this is wrongful conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today's story, well, I'll just say Shakespeare could have written this one and... um, it would rank up there with some of the crazy plot twists in some of his best work. And you're going to find out why as we go along in today's episode. And without further ado, I want to introduce our guests. We have two guests today. The man himself who lived through this absolutely bizarre and insane sequence of events, Octavius Williams. Octavius, I'm happy you're here, but I'm sorry you're here because of what happened to you that brought you to this point. But anyway, welcome to Rawful Conviction. It's a pleasure to be here for sure. Thank you for having me. With Octavius is Joanna Sanchez, and Joanna is the director of the Wrongful Conviction Project at the Office of the Ohio Public Defender. So I imagine, Joanna, you have your hands full, and I'm glad that you are here to share with us about this incredible story. So welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having us. And This story, this is a relatively recent case compared to some of the cases. Listen, we have cases back from the 70s, um, but this one 
This one happened just, I mean, it's a short time ago. It's also a long time ago, 2011. Of course, this is Cuyahoga County, and we've heard that name again and again on this podcast as sort of a, a hotbed of wrongful convictions. And I want to go back, Octavius, to before this horrible night, where what started off as sounds like a joyous occasion turned into this tragedy, left somebody paralyzed and 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 put your life on paralysis, really. I mean, it's an awful scenario all the way around. But your life before that was full of promise. Tell us a little bit about the family dynamic and what was your life like growing up? What were, what were you into? Oh, my life, it was, I'm going to say it like a regular life. Like, you know, my parents-wise, everything was cool, even though they, they, they was with divorce. If we was living on the West Side, my dad was living on the West Side. It was just, we was always close, you know. So it was never a, a split time in between that we didn't see each other. Like I said, everything was cool. We uh, It was two households. I always used to go to my dad's house a lot because he, we had a different bond than me and my mom. Other than that, they, they decided to send me to my own school because I, I guess they seen that I had a different potential than my uh, other siblings. I understand you were like a, a super talented basketball player. Is that right? Yeah, and still is. But like that was my passion. Anybody in my family tell you I was a golden ticket. <laughs> let, let them tell it. Before I was incarcerated, I was attending uh, this school called Margaret Island. It's on Chester. They gave me a shot to be on their team, and I, I took it. Didn't know I was that good, you know, but, you know, just enough to be scouted, you know, when I, and out of nowhere, it just, they took it away, <laughs> you know. So you were, you were in 11th grade when this, when this, uh, yeah, event when this occurred. Happened. Well, you were coming up in your reputation. I mean, if it's reached all the way up to New York on 2023, <laughs> there must <laughs> have been some excitement around your potential. So, Tell us a little bit about what happened that night. Why, how did you end up at this party? Was it Whose house was it at? My dad was Arden Terry and his girlfriend, Consuela. They threw a party for my little sister. It was her birthday, like literally like about to be her birthday. But we threw it on Halloween. She was turning 10. Somehow, some way, it ended up an adult party at nighttime. Everybody brought everybody together. Like everything was cool. Everything was cordial. You know, everybody was having a good time. You know, there was never no problems between the families you know what I'm saying but some way somehow out of nowhere at the end of the party as things were settling down all the altercation and stuff started happening yeah this started at a halloween party in 2010 so octavius's dad arden and arden's girlfriend consuela were hosting a party at their house they had about 30 to 40 family members there and as the party starts to wind down going to about midnight a bit of a conflict erupts and so no one really knows like why the fight started it's a verbal fight kind of the two sides of the family are arguing a bit at that point octavius and his dad and some others are upstairs in their apartment and this is happening down in the backyard behind the apartment so octavius's dad goes downstairs the backyard he confronts one of the men larry who's kind of causing some of the problems and larry shoots a gun and he starts shooting towards arden so Arden ducks down, there's guns firing, and then when the shooting stops, a man named Dennis Cole, who was Consuela's cousin, and her other cousin, Cedric Johnson, are both shot. And Dennis Cole's been shot in the chest and the back, and the police come and they say, you know, who shot you? And he can't say at that time more than juvenile blackmail. And, you know, there's quite a few people at the party that match that description, but some of the other individuals who had been at the party, by the point the police get there, they've already left. And so at that point, 
there's a lot of people out there just yelling names and saying, you know, was it this person? Was it that person? And so the police at some point hear the name Tay-Tay, and that's Octavius's nickname. And so I think that sets them on the path toward Octavius. The police, they go upstairs, and Octavius is upstairs in the apartment. He's in the, the bedroom with a bunch of the kids who are there. And they're like, hey, this guy matches the description in the sense that he's a 17-year-old black kid. And so they test him for gunshot residue. It comes back negative. They look for guns, weapons on him. They find nothing. By this point, they've heard that the person who actually did the shooting has left the party. But even with all of that, they decide, let's arrest him. And so they arrest Octavius and take him to the police station. They didn't know that I was underage. They took me straight to the adult jail. I know I was scared shitless. They didn't even ask my age or none of that. They just straight took me to the big house until they realized that when they read my social that I was a juvenile. Then I had to sit there for a little bit before they transferred me back to to, to the juvenile. You know, they had you stripped down all this. I mean, I was I, I felt violated. No lie, I never stood naked in front of a man before. I mean, you were still a child, just a junior in high school thrust into a very adult situation. And despite the negative GSR test, no weapons on you, hearing that the shooter had already left the party, they just went ahead and booked you anyway. And meanwhile, the victim, Dennis Cole, was at the hospital. He had stabilized by now, and he had seen his shooter. Now, at the time Dennis Cole was shot, there's a lot of problems that would lead to an unreliable identification. So first of all, there's a gun involved in this crime, which we know can distract someone from really looking at the perpetrator. We also know it was dark. And perhaps most significantly, Dennis Cole had a blood alcohol of 0.27 at the time that this occurred. And so he's more than three times the legal limit. And that's the circumstances that he's observing this crime in. So Dennis Cole was shot in the chest and the back. You know, he survived. He was in the hospital for several months. He was paralyzed, but he did survive. And so the police get there. He gives this description again. This time he adds a little bit more detail. So he says, you know, black male juvenile. It was one of Arden's sons, not the one with the hair. And so Arden had several sons. Octavius has a few brothers. So a few of them are at the party. And Dennis's family says, you know, if he says it's the one not with the hair, well, then that's Ricky. That's not Octavius. That's Ricky. And by this point, the police are starting to get calls from people saying Ricky Williams committed this crime. That's Octavius's older brother. But they still move forward with putting Octavius in a photo array and showing it to Dennis Cole. The only person who is at the party who's in this array is Octavius. And he's heard the name Tay-Tay at some point in the background. So he identifies him and selects him from the photo array. Right. So they knew that the shooter was somebody at the party. The victim had identified the shooter as, quote, one of Arden's sons, not the one with the hair, end quote. According to the victim's own family, what that meant was that it was Octavius's older brother, Ricky, who looks a lot like Octavius and who was also at the party. If they had wanted to make a more reasonable photo array, shouldn't they have included at least Ricky's photo or perhaps pictures of other people who were at the party? I mean, nonetheless, the only person in this photo array that was even at the party was Octavius. Now, the image of Octavius's face was the one that Dennis Cole had gotten fixed in his mind as the shooter. At some point, several months later, they'll give Dennis a photo array that includes Ricky Williams. But at that point, he's already picked Octavius and, and committed to that identification. So, you know, he doesn't make the selection at that point either. While many people 
think their minds operate more or less like cameras. In fact, that's not even close to the truth. And our minds play tricks on us in all kinds of ways. But among other things, we will start to tailor our memory to match influences that are shown to us or suggested to us. And so, you know, here's a guy who's been through this horrific experience of being shot twice and is now laying in this hospital bed and, and, and his, as you said, his blood alcohol level. I mean, he was really drunk. So that is the beginning of his memory sort of fixing itself onto Octavius. Now the police have this identification and they're really not looking at anything else at that point. They're really not considering other leads. At trial, there's multiple people who testified that Ricky was the person who was responsible for this shooting. Octavius and Ricky's little sister, Jessica, was upstairs in the apartment. You know, she hears like this fight going on in the backyard. So she looks out to see what's going on. And she sees Ricky back there with a gun. There's another young boy upstairs, Reginald Ward. He's 14 years old. He's actually the victim's cousin. And he looks out also when he hears the fight. And he sees Dennis Cole go up to Ricky, punch him in the face, and then Ricky shoot him. So there are people who are on the scene that night who know that Ricky Williams was responsible for this. And what we learned looking at the trial was that the police actually started to get messages and voicemails saying, hey, Ricky Williams is the one who committed this crime. And they don't go out and talk to him. You know, they I think they said to Octavius's family, like, hey, let, let Ricky know we want to talk to him. But they didn't actually go find him or bring him in or try to interrogate him or even interview him. They just kind of collected that information, but still went forward investigating and prosecuting Octavius. How lazy can you be that you have multiple people coming forward, tips coming in, and they can't even be bothered to go and speak to him? And at that very moment, they should have switched course. Octavia should have been freed. Ricky should have been arrested. And we should never be making this podcast right now. But that's, of course, not what happened. Octavius, you were charged with attempted murder and several other related offenses. All of this must have just, I mean, how, how were you able to process this as a 17-year-old kid? You're not even a senior in high school yet. You're just a child. I didn't process it until I was actually in prison. I understand that being in jail is hard, but being in jail innocent, though, and you know that you are, is way harder, real hard. There's another sick aspect of this that I have to focus on, which is the fact that Octavius was tried as an adult because he turned 18 before the trial began. Now, how does that make any freaking difference, right? He was 17 when it happened, if you, so in theory, they could this crime could have happened when he was 13. They could have held him five years until trial. And, then, and we've seen that before, too. But it's nuts. You can't both be a child and an adult at the same time. But they managed to try him as an adult anyway. Now, at trial, the victim testified that you were the shooter, Octavius. But multiple other witnesses testified under oath that you were upstairs in the apartment when the fight and the shooting occurred. And the shooting, obviously, was downstairs. And witnesses who watched the fight from the window in the apartment testified that Ricky shot the victim, not you. I didn't know that it was him that shot anybody. I didn't know that. It was for sure hard to process when I when I realized that what people were saying, that who it was. So the trial lasted five days, and the jury had a choice between the 
perspective of all these other witnesses who were directly contradicting the victim himself, who had by now convinced himself that you were the person that had shot him. And off they went to deliberate. I just sat there. And the reason that I was cool and I was calm is because I, I, had, I knew that I had to keep my composure no matter what the verdict was. But I was angry. I'm just very good at keeping it to myself. I'm very good at hiding it. But when they came up with that verdict, though, I felt like my heart stopped. Just, 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 just the beat or two. But, you know, I got, I got my, my ear back. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robey. And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of challenge champion. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Never thought that I would be the one to be incarcerated. As a fresh 18 in there, I... You know, had to take the scenery in and, and had to get used to me being around a lot of older people, a lot of killers, a lot of rapists and all this that I'm not used to, you know. So I had to adapt to my surroundings. And it was kind of hard, you know, because of the unexpected fights and stuff like that. Like, you know, you've seen movies and things like that. It's, it's not how it is in movies, you know. Things really pop off like out of nowhere. So from what I understand, not long after your trial concluded, your brother came forward and actually confessed to shooting Mr. Cole. I believe he even made a written statement where he said, and I quote, Shortly after the party ended, an argument occurred outside the apartment complex between my father, Arden Terry, and Larry Johnson. They had a few words back and forth. But once the argument reached the back of the apartment, I was right in front of the back door, and all of a sudden, Larry Johnson started shooting towards me and my father's direction. And shortly after, Dennis Cole ran at me and punched me in the eye. 
And I pulled out my gun and shot him out of fear for me and my family's lives because shots were being fired at us first. End quote. Wow. That's a pretty detailed confession. And this all happened within a month or so of your trial while you were being processed into Toledo Correctional, where you'd spend a long stretch. So when you heard about this confession, like, I can't even imagine, like, what was your reaction? Oh, I was, I was, oh, man. And I didn't know anything about it. Oh, man, I was, I was pissed. Like, I was really, I was really fucking pissed, like, for real. Because if the people would have done what they were supposed to do, then maybe I wouldn't have made it to all the way to Toledo Correctional Institution. Oh, yeah, I was, I was, I was for sure devastated. I was pissed. I was angry as hell that all of this could have been avoided. Did you have an attorney at that time? And if so, I imagine you were on the phone with, with him or her in seconds going, hey, get me out of here. This uh, is, right? I tried. I'm not going to say they didn't reply to my messages or whatnot, but it took weeks for me to get something back from them, you know, when they have all of this in front of them. Yeah, it definitely seems like one of these situations where the doors should just swing open and you should come running out into the sunshine. But, of course, that's not the way it works. Joanna, how did you get involved? And this must have blown your mind when you heard that there was this detailed confession as well as all this other evidence pointing to actual innocence. Octavius applied to our project, I think, around 2012. And so we had a couple of students assigned to it and they started looking into it. And, you know, right away, there's red flags for us. So the first is that the only evidence that implicates him is this eyewitness identification that is just plagued with problems. And then there's no physical evidence. And we've got these witnesses at trial who are saying Ricky Williams did the crime. So we started investigating, and the focus of our investigation was really to confirm some of the things that happened at trial, to go out and talk to Reginald Ward and Shafonda English and Jessica Terry and say, you know, is what you testified to at trial true? And then we wanted to consult with an eyewitness identification expert and and make sure that what we thought we were seeing about the identification, that we were correct and that there were all these problems. Right. These are all the issues that could have and should have already been known at the time of trial. But then there's this confession from Ricky Williams. We actually went and talked to Ricky. We sent out an investigator before we had ever seen the affidavit that he had already signed. And so our investigator goes to talk to Ricky and Ricky immediately starts talking about that night and says, hey, I committed this crime. And so he signs an affidavit right there in front of our investigator going through everything that happened that night, which matches up exactly with what the witnesses said, which is that there was this fight and Dennis Cole punched Ricky and Ricky shot him. And so once we got that confession, yeah, of course, we thought we had it locked up. This is this is as clear evidence as we could get that Octavius has been telling us the truth this whole time. He didn't commit this crime. And we thought that it was clear he was innocent and that he should be released. But of course, the wheels of justice turn quickly when we're processing somebody into the system. But when we're trying to right those wrongs, they turn at a snail's pace. And this is a dramatic example of it, because even in a case like this, where it couldn't be more obvious, and had, I'm going to say, if the police had done their jobs in the first place, if they had just gone and interviewed Ricky, they probably would have seen a bruise if he was punched in the eye. Granted, they couldn't have gotten maybe the gunshot residue because if they couldn't have found him that night, it would have been washed away. But 
this would have been a very simple case to solve had people been interested in really solving it as opposed to just putting a black body behind bars. So it was submitted for review by the Conviction Integrity Unit of the Cuyahoga County Prosecutor's Office. And they, as I understand it, conducted an extensive investigation. So around the time that we had collected all of the evidence in this case, Mike O'Malley had come into office and, and part of his campaign had been to take this conviction integrity unit and really put some resources behind it and make it a legitimate unit. So that's why we submitted Octavius's case. In our mind, it was like, this is clear as day. Let's show them the evidence and try to work together. And as you said, for two and a half years, they investigated this case. They talked to all sorts of witnesses. They tested evidence. We let them look at the defense files. They talked to Octavius. And in fact, a prosecutor and I actually went out and interviewed Ricky Williams together. And Ricky confessed on tape to a prosecutor. And after wrapping up what they say were several years of investigative work on the story behind Octavius's conviction... The CIU's Internal Review Board cast a majority vote in favor of what the criminal justice system calls, and our audience is very familiar with those words, exoneration and actual innocence. The CIU's independent review panel concurred with a, get this, a unanimous vote. They said that Octavius Williams was innocent of this crime. There are two panels, one internal, one made of community members, as you said, voted in favor of exoneration. And so once we heard that news, we're, of course, elated. We think this is it. We think Octavius is coming home. He'll be exonerated. And then we learned that the elected prosecutor, Michael O'Malley, wouldn't agree to exoneration. So rather than letting Octavius out and agreeing to you know, move the court to dismiss the charges, he agreed to let him out, but not to clear the case. And so in Ohio, that's called judicial release. So in December of 2019, Octavius gets to go home after serving about 10, 11 years in prison, but still has this attempted murder charge hanging over his head. It's nuts. The fact that he went against the unanimous recommendation of his own unit that he had so highly touted during his campaign. I can't even begin to speculate what his motives are. There's a quote where he said, what is justice in this case? I think in this particular case, we did the best we could. I think we did what was right, end quote. What in the world is he talking about? And what would he possibly have been motivated by to still want to deny justice in what is probably one of the easiest exoneration cases he's ever going to see? Nonetheless, on December 2019, Octavius, you were free to go, but you weren't declared innocent. So this must have been as, as joyous as it must have been to, to finally walk out into the free air. Must have been bittersweet, no? Yeah, it was for sure that. It was. To know that I was at home, it was more sweet than bitter, though. You know, because I was actually outside of that place again. You know what I'm saying? And then, as I sat and realized, I still have the same thing hanging on my head, so... Now that messes with my future, job-wise. Can't get a good job with a top one felony. You have to really put your neck out there and hope that it don't get cut off in order for you to make ends meet.
Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of Challenge Champion. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The fact that they made you wear an ankle monitor and have a 30-day curfew and two years on probation is really rubbing salt in the wound. And I think it's insulting not just to you, but to the public um, and to the members of the board who, you know, who carefully considered this case, to the people who worked two and a half years to investigate this case. It's, yeah, it's an insult to all of those people and to everyone who cares about justice that they would double down, so to speak, on this wrongful conviction. One other thing that's happened recently, this just occurred in November of last year, is that all of the community members of the Conviction Integrity Unit resigned. And they resigned because for the past couple of years, they hadn't been given any cases. And because they had met with the prosecutor and, and talked about what they wanted their role to be, and they believed in the mission of the Conviction Integrity Unit and wanted to be able to use that unit to achieve justice for people, and, and didn't feel that they were being given the opportunity to do that. And, and so they resigned. And there's no longer any community members of the unit at this point. Wow. That's a powerful statement. I can send you their resignation letter, which has 
you know, all the reasons why they resigned. Yeah, everyone be on the lookout for that on our Instagram. I mean, how in the world could the community members of the Cuyahoga County CIU not be given any cases at all to review for years? Just not even given them at all to even review. From what we know about that town, there should be somewhere between a steady flow and an avalanche of cases because it's about as corrupt as it gets. So we hope for a full exoneration in Octavius's case. And maybe this episode will serve to shine some light on the Cuyahoga CIU and the wishes of those community members. We'd hate to think that the CIU over there is just a bunch of window dressing, something to be talked about around election time. Let's go ahead and hold Michael Malley accountable. And speaking of accountability, I'm guessing that the decision to leave this conviction hanging over Octavius's head means that they never went after Ricky. Is that accurate? That's right. So Ricky has never been charged with this offense. He's incarcerated for another offense, a shooting that occurred about a year after the events that gave rise to this case. But this is a person who's confessed over and over that he shot an individual on October 31st, 2010, and he's never been charged with that crime. I can't even begin to imagine what the hell anybody's thinking. I mean, if they were prosecuting Ricky, they certainly would use these confessions as proof to get their conviction. I mean, it's the most compelling evidence that he committed this crime. But when we're talking about using it to exonerate Octavius, it's not good enough. Of course, it's an infamous double standard that we see over and over again all through our criminal legal system. So where are we at in that fight? He's free, but that doesn't mean you guys are just going to give up on his full exoneration. So after Octavius was released, we still went ahead and filed a motion seeking a new trial. And the basis of that was the fact that Ricky has confessed all of these times. And the report of an eyewitness identification expert really talking about the problems with Dennis Cole's identification. So we filed that at the beginning of 2020. Then the pandemic hit. So things really slowed down in the courts for quite a long time. And eventually, last May, we had a hearing on the motion. And so right now we're waiting on a decision on that. It's been pending for about seven months. But if that's granted, the impact of that will be that Octavius's conviction will be vacated. And at that point, if if we do achieve that, we hope that Michael Malley will dismiss the charges and that he'll be exonerated. Well, let's hope that we don't see a judge willing to ignore this clear case of innocence, as Mr. O'Malley seemed so comfortable in doing before him. Now, In the meantime, with this conviction still hanging over your head, I know it's been tough looking for work. You don't have a GoFundMe or anything like that, but I'm sure there are members of our audience who'd like to help in your job search. I mean, I hope so. If there's somebody in the area that's got something, what kind of work are you looking for? I've been looking for demolition. I've been looking for factory jobs. You know, I just got my tow motor license, you know, so that's basically what I'm looking for. You still live in the Cleveland area? Yeah. All right, so construction and factory-type work in the Cleveland area. We'll have ways that our audience can reach out to you just by simply going to the link in our bio. So if you're somebody who's got an idea, don't stop listening right now. Put it on pause and go right to the link in the bio and, and reach out. And also, if anyone with a law degree or some clout in the Cleveland area who wants to offer their help in bringing about Octavius's full exoneration, please do reach out as well. And with that, We come to my favorite part of the show. Of course, it's called Closing Arguments, and it works like this. I'm going to turn my microphone off, 
leave my headphones on, of course, kick back in my chair and close my eyes and just listen to any other thoughts you want to share with me and our amazing audience. Joanna, let's start with you. And then, of course, we'll have Octavius close out the show. Thank you for having us today and for sharing this story. I think Octavius's case is is a really sad example of how hard it can be for the wrongfully convicted to obtain relief and to get justice. You know, as we've talked about today, his case is really straightforward. We know who did it. We've got multiple confessions from Ricky. We've got the conviction integrity unit saying he should be exonerated. And still here he sits with this hanging over his head. It's sad. It's discouraging. It's the role of a prosecutor to seek justice, not to maintain convictions. And, and that's not what happened here. But we're thankful for the opportunity to shine a light on Octavius's case. And we're still fighting. You know, We filed a motion for new trial uh, after he got out, and that's still pending. We're waiting for a decision on that so that hopefully in the, in the coming months and years, Octavius can move forward with his life and Nothing will ever make him whole. Nothing will ever give him those 10 years back or or change what happened to him. But while he's home, he hasn't gotten the true justice he deserves. And our hope is that one day we can accomplish that for him. Yeah, I mean, how can you say that you will free someone if you still have something hanging over someone's head? How is that necessarily free? It's not free. To me, it's slavery. You took me out of one hellhole to make me feel like I'm free, but at the same time, I'm not. A lot of it still hurts to this day sometimes. I don't speak about it, you know what I'm saying, because I'm the type of person, you know how a man is, to keep it to themselves, to try to deal with it themselves. That's just me. Sometimes I have hard times, sometimes I don't. Mental state-wise, you know, some people, I might look normal all this on the outside, but, you know, it's a lot going on in my, in my mind because I can't get out of here. Each and everywhere I turn, I could hear and see something that remind me of it. The other day, I went to the the mall with my girl, and we went there, and I started getting anxious because it was a lot of people in there. My hands started sweating. I started. I didn't know that it still had that type of effect on me. This was years later. It's not easy for the ones that've been there incarcerated for a long time to just adapt to what's going on. I'm still adapting. I don't know, it's, it's, it's hard. I know that for sure. Sometimes you have your moments where you're, you're happy, you're, things feel easy or whatnot, just like that. But a lot of times it's just you don't know really what's going on. You're just you're just in the world, just a piece on the chessboard, waiting for your move. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis, with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. Hey everybody, welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. 
Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to a Cross Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.